We have definitely witnessed that ourselves. I mean, there were times when everyone, anxiety, which was just so rampant, that was, you could almost feel it in the air, you know. And yet through a music concert, it was amazing how people were able to calm down. I mean, we saw points sometimes when entire rooms of people would, who had numbed themselves to the pain would cry for the first time together. Or the opposite, they'd go from despair to complete joy because of music. It gave them this comfort that you would never, ever expect. On March the 11th, 2011, Japan experienced the strongest earthquake in its recorded history. The earthquake struck below the northern Pacific Ocean east of Sendai, the largest city in Tohoku, part of the island Honshu. The Tohoku earthquake caused a tsunami producing waves up to 132 feet. More than 450,000 people became homeless and over 15,000 died. In addition to the thousands of destroyed homes, businesses, roads, and railways, the tsunami caused the meltdown of three nuclear reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Often in such disasters, the question arises, where was God? Today, we want to reflect and share with you how God has worked and is working in the aftermath of such devastation. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Pleasure, friend, to have you stop by. Today, we welcome Roger Lowther, founder and the director of Community Arts Tokyo, which is assisting church planting through the arts. Roger, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Welcome back to Memphis. This is no strange town no, to you, right? Not. Yeah, thank you for welcoming me. It's great to be here. Now, you first came to Memphis after college, took your first job playing a pipe organ at Second Presbyterian Church. What a start. I mean, you must be amazingly coordinated to be able to move those fingers and feet at the same time on a pipe organ. Well, they do have a big organ there, so it does take a lot of uh, physical exercise to make it sound. Yes. Did you major in music? I did. My degree was in organ performance. Did your mom play the organ or your no, dad? Uh, no, my mom didn't. My grandfather did, and my mom loved the sound of it. She thought, well, I guess it skipped a generation. I'll get my son to do it. So she dragged me down to the church organist and said, you're going to take from him. And he was an amazing teacher. And that wasn't in Memphis, was it? No, he was in uh, New York City. Well, Boston. Sorry, I grew up in Boston. Did you really? Fond memories of lobster and clam chowder. <laughs> oh, I do. I sure do. Well, you met your wife here in Memphis, I understand. What yes. were the circumstances that led to that romance? Well, we were both uh, working at Second Presbyterian Church, and we were both in the singles group there, and I fell madly in love, and that was something you just, you can't turn your back on. What a great story. Yeah. I opened up talking about the devastation of that earthquake and tsunami on March the 11th, 2011. I can still picture the people and roadways just being washed away and just incredible devastation there. Yeah, it was a horrible time. One that's engraved on the hearts of American people, uh, Roger, is 9-11. Mm -hmm. And that date, kind of a pivotal point in your life, mm -hmm. it kind of reordered your life. And how did it do that? Well, in my case, there were a lot of services being held, memorial services at Second Presbyterian Church right after. Unfortunately, I wasn't in Memphis. I was stuck. I had been on a business trip and got stuck where I was and couldn't get back. Through that, it was interesting how no one wanted to fly once flying started again. My wife had lived in Japan for a while and said, this is the time to go visit Japan. Flight tickets were like 
$300 round trip or some some crazy amount. No one was flying. The plane was completely empty. And so just a couple months later, we went off to Tokyo, Japan. So this was just a an excursion, just a getaway, a, a, a travel, a vacation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a short-term missions trip, a two-week trip, just to use our music to help the church playing activities there and also get to meet some of the friends that my wife had, she knew some people over there already. So we were connecting with people. So how did you first connect with uh, Mission to the World? Share some of the backstory of this mission organization. Uh-huh. Well, my wife's father ended up studying at seminary with the team leader of the Mission to the World Japan church planning team. And so she was called over between high school and college as a gap year to work with them. And so that relationship developed with her. She came back, met her, we married. I'm like, well, what is, I asked the same question. What is this mission to the world? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? So I um, had to go see for myself. I've noticed they have works in various parts of the world, not just Japan. Right. Yeah. And, well, there's a sending agency of the Presbyterian Church of America, and they do work around the globe. They're a pretty big mission agency. The work in Japan with the ministry, I think there's some hundred plus workers, including some of the nationals, but the team overall is over a hundred people, I believe. Yeah. And when you count all our families and kids, boy, it's over 200 people. Oh my. What were some of the critical adaptations that you encountered once you first arrived in Japan? You had that initial break in when you took that trip, but doing life, there's so much different. We were missionaries on the island of Guam. I remember the late Adrian Rogers told us before we went there, he said, you know, give it about two years, then it'll start feeling like home. Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember that first Christmas, the first Thanksgiving, there were things to adapt to. Of course, we had three children we were taking with us too. Beautiful place, though. I've been fortunate enough to get to visit. But yeah, Japan, you know, at first, it's funny when you first get there, you're like, yeah, I mean, different language, different people. But, you know, it's basically the same, right? Well, actually, the longer I've been there, the more different I feel like it is. <laughs> Just the way, even from little things like how do you do meetings? You know, how do you build relationships with people? The little things that are big things, <laughs> if you do them wrong. Well, what about the polite language? Well, the polite language, you know, they, they give you a lot of grace when it comes to that, because <laughs> that is hard to learn. Seemed like when we were on the island, I needed to buy a saw. And mm-hmm. I bought a handsaw that was manufactured in Japan. And I noticed when I was using the saw, it was on the upcut that it actually cut. Now, American <laughs> saw is on the down stroke. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how many things you are, find as opposites there. Like, for example, the streets don't have any names there. Like here, we name our streets. We say, you know, whatever number, whatever street. That's not so in Japan. They name the blocks, the plots of land, and the streets have no names. They're just the space in between the places that have names. What about language school? How difficult was that? For us, it was kind of fun. We got to go off to a language school that was specific for missionaries up in the mountains. And I love mountains, Mm. so I got to do a lot of hiking. But uh, it was, you know, one year we spent just full-time language school. I'd go to class in the morning. My wife would go in the afternoon. We had different language partners to practice conversation. So, but it really, it took, oh, I want to say like seven years before I was fluent. Really comfortable with it. Yeah. Other than Konnichiwa, you know, I don't really speak any Japanese. And you can say I butchered most of the names of the cities and towns (laughs) that we were speaking of in the opening. But uh, I enjoy watching the culture through the NHK Tokyo app on my Roku TV Mm -hmm. and learning about traveling through, biking through Japan. And I mean, Mm -hmm. the culture and the people, so fascinating. Yeah, it's an amazing place to live. I fairly feel 
privilege to be there. So let's talk about what you're doing now through arts ministry, church mm-hmm. planting, and specifically, I think it's interesting about this arts ministry mm-hmm. that you're using to communicate the gospel there in Japan. So I'm an organist, and so it's natural for me to come as a missionary who is an artist rather than as a pastor. That was actually one of the images I had to fight in my own head is like, I can't be a missionary. I haven't been to seminary. I'm not a pastor. Why would they want me (laughs) to go there? So we kind of had to figure it out little by little, but you know, we found out the arts are a great tool for both connecting people and sharing the gospel. I understand there's been this love for classical music Mm -hmm. among Japanese people. The arts of Bach and Beethoven. Oh, definitely. I had the privilege of going to Leipzig, Germany, which has this Bach, most famous Bach museum in the world. And they want to show, okay, here's the best performances of Bach. And you know, the recordings they played were of Japanese musicians. Were they? (laughs) It's just so amazing that Japanese really consider Bach uh, as something worthy of praise and have really gone out to do some great recordings of it. Roger, where were you and your wife on March the 11th, 2011, when the earthquake and the tsunami hit Japan? Well, my wife and I have different stories about that. For me, I was underground in a subway. And the subway train shut down. I thought like we were going to hit something because it stopped so suddenly and everyone got thrown. And then we had to wait out the earthquake. It took like an hour before we were able to get to the next station to get out of there. That's not even including the aftershocks, I guess, that took place. Because I know there were multiple, oh, maybe hundreds of aftershocks. It was hundreds. Yeah, it was yeah. constant. In the region where the tsunami hit, 450,000 people were homeless. 15 plus thousand people died. I know. I mean, the first thing, it was chaos in Tokyo. As we're trying to figure out, like, what, was the city leveled? Like, what's going on here? And I... I don't know if you've seen that movie, Volcano, where <laughs> after this big volcano, there's an uh, earthquake, there's lava that comes pouring down the subway tunnels. I'm thinking, oh, we're going to have to run from a wall of lava in these subway <laughs> tunnels. We didn't know what to expect. And uh, by the time I got out, everyone was out on the streets. There wasn't a single person in a building because they were afraid of, of buildings collapsing or damage like that. Now, fortunately, Tokyo is built for that. The buildings, there really was hardly any damage at all. And so we had thought we had avoided the worst of it. But then as I was walking home, because all the subways had stopped, saw in a big window on the TV screens the wave that was coming, destroying the northeast coast of Japan. Mm -hmm. And I was just horrified. At that time, I didn't know where it was, but I could definitely see the damage that was causing. Did you and your wife think about leaving Japan? We were asked by our boss, our team leader, uh, missionary team leader saying, hey, do you want to go home? If you feel unsafe, it's okay to go back to the States. Because most of the foreigners in Japan were leaving, mostly because of the power plants breaking. They didn't know how bad it was going to get. There were rumors that all of Tokyo was going to have to evacuate. It was pretty bad those early days. It got really bad. The earthquake was on a Friday. On Saturday, we're trying to figure out what is going on and just making sure everyone's okay, connecting with one another. Sunday, churches started saying, well, we want to do something, started bringing food, supplies, water, clothing, things like that. And they're like, well, how are we going to get it up there? There's nothing going up there. And so I was volunteered (laughs) to drive up that night, Sunday night. Well, we had a two-ton truck that someone had let us borrow. And that was the beginning of my experiences up there with relief work. 
Give us an eyewitness account. What did you see? Talk about the devastation and how the people were. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, In those early days, a lot of the relief organizations couldn't get in because the airport, the Sendai airport, which is the nearest big airport, was shut down. The tsunami had covered it. So the only people who were able to respond were the Japanese self-defense force to the military. So those early days when we got up, that was all we found. Their first job was to try to find all the bodies and get them out of there. So it was them and then and me. Oh <laughs> and, my. And some other missionaries too yeah. had driven up and Japanese pastors had come up with us too. So were you concerned about the nuclear fallout because of those reactors that melted down? We we were. We didn't know my Japanese wasn't great at that point, and so I wasn't sure what they were going on and on about on the radio. We weren't sure <laughs> exactly what was happening. And so there was that fear of the unknown, I think, and they were telling us things like, Well, don't drink the water. But all the bottled water was gone in the entire city. And we had small children. We had babies. You know, they're like, well, for the radiation, just eat lots of seaweed for iodine. (laughs) I'm like, okay, is that going to really help? (laughs) Like, how bad is this? This sort of thing. In your own home and the leadership of your home with your wife and the kids, how did you guys get through this in the middle of all this? Mm -hmm. You're there to do ministry and your world just gets turned upside down. It sure did. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say we were doing family during that point because we became the center of the relief organization, all the relief efforts. My wife is really good at connecting with people. And she had called up her friend and said, well, my husband's up north in the disaster area. So if you want to bring some things when he comes back, you know, we can take it next trip. Well, that started a whole, her friends called their friends, called their friends, called their friends. Soon it seemed like the whole city was bringing us relief stuff because <laughs> pretty soon our whole house, all the bedrooms are full of boxes from floor to ceiling where we don't have enough room. And so they gave us the whole meeting area downstairs at the Bomber building. We live on the 22nd floor. And then that filled up floor to ceiling. <laughs> like this is crazy. Just hundreds of people bringing stuff and there was no way we could take it all, that was the beginnings of the relief organization. You were moved to write a book, Aroma of Beauty. Mm -hmm. This is really your heart and thoughts, the process of this whole experience. Right. Yeah. I kept having people over and over again asking me like, isn't this, is this a judgment on Japan? Isn't this proof that God doesn't exist? Look at this. This is terrible. Just having people constantly, um, mourning the loss of their loved ones. There's just so much loss. It was a really painful time. And yet I had to answer, no, there are so many proofs that God is here and he's working. And I wanted to capture those stories. And so I put them in my book, you know, Aroma of Beauty, to try to, God was sharing his love, his beauty during that time. And that's what brought us through and gave us hope in a really dark time. Another way you have used your giftings of music to minister to the heart. I was thinking about King Saul and how his mm. heart was troubled often, and David would come in and play his harp and soothe his nerves. Something about music and the power of music that goes really deep and speaks to the soul. Yeah, we have definitely witnessed that ourselves. I mean, there were times when everyone, anxiety, which was just so rampant, that was you could almost feel it in the air, you know. And yet through a music concert, it was amazing how people were able to calm down. I mean, we saw points sometimes when entire rooms of people would, who had numbed themselves to the pain would cry for the first time together. Or the opposite, they'd go from despair to complete joy 
because of music. It gave them this comfort that you would never, ever expect. You know, yes. there's always this image like that the arts is something extra, something decorative, something we don't really need. It's a luxury, but we can kind of get rid of it in the hard times. Yeah. But what we found is the exact opposite. You actually need it the most at those yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah. I understand mm. how situations like a tsunami, earthquake, and throw you into an emergency mode or a rescue mm. mode that, to help right then in that crucial right. time and how important that is. But as that time starts moving forward, passing the epicenter of that, trying to pick up the pieces, mm-hmm. uh, what did the strategy for church planning look like with so many families misplaced, infrastructure damage, the threat of the nuclear waste? Well, it was about a month after the earthquake that the shelters started turning us away saying, you know what, we have enough supplies now. We don't need it anymore. You don't no, thank you. You know, you you stay in Tokyo now. And that was at that point, we had built up relationships at all these shelters all up and down the coast. And so I started saying, well, actually, I'm not a truck driver. I'm a, I'm a musician. And I have a lot of musical friends. And we could come up and give concerts. And they said, well, I don't know how that would work. Why don't we try it? How about after lunch next Tuesday, 1.30, why don't you give a short concert? And we'll see how it goes. And that was the beginning of a beautiful thing. And just because we were able then to continue those relationships when a lot of relief organizations had to stop because their job was done. And so our relationships continued for months and months ahead as we continued to come back giving concerts. So what do these concerts look like, Roger? Well, it was different depending upon the situation and the shelters too, I should say, it's different upon, you know, it was where, wherever there was a spot that was clean. So sometimes libraries, uh, sometimes gymnasiums, sometimes uh, there were like fitness complexes, <laughs> um, Buddhist temples, mm-hmm. I mean, just all kinds of places. And we would come in, sometimes it was festive, sometimes it was not. And the musicians that accompanied you, guitar players, uh, flute players, I mean, who joined you? We had a lot of volunteers coming from all over the world. And so that was my main thing is getting them involved by taking them up there. But we brought a lot of people from Japan as well. Uh, I remember specifically a shakuhachi player. That's a traditional Japanese flute. And people loved hearing that. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, Now, there's a wonderful work of God that's taking place in Tokyo right now. Ten churches in ten years. Hundreds are coming to Christ. Your events are being well attended. What do you attribute this spiritual awakening Mm. or movement of God by? Yeah, I really saw how we were able to build trust in the community by doing this relief effort. And a lot of people came to know us and said, wow, if you're doing things like this, we don't mind being around you. And then it's through those relationships that people were becoming Christians. And just one after another, we planted Grace City Church Tokyo in 2010. And then the assistant pastor, who was the head of the relief organization, a Japanese man, he ended up planting the second church. And then just kind of snowballed from there as people kept saying, wow, those Christians, they're doing such great stuff up north. They were willing to come back and be part of our community. Are you seeing the nationals who are making decisions for Christ Mm -hmm. in turn wanting to reach their own people for Christ? Well, there's a little fear in, in, there's certain cultural barriers they have in Japanese society. So in some ways it's easier for missionaries. And yet 
Um, there was a, there's a great partnership and trust built between Japanese nationals and missionaries there. But my pastor is Japanese, so I'm there to support him, encourage him, help the growth of the church. And so the network that's building is all Japanese pastors for the most part. Yeah, a beautiful thing, the way we're able to work together. A couple of other things I want to touch on. We don't have a lot of time to sure. get too involved with, but the Tokyo Olympics created an avenue for ministry. Right. I also want to talk about how COVID has impacted the people of Japan and what's going on now oh, in light COVID. of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So the Olympics, I mean, it was just amazing how then God was working during that time after the earthquake. Things are growing, though, as you said, uh, events really well attended. 10 churches in 10 years, and then we were looking to do another 10 on top of that in five years after that. And it was just really exciting time. And the Tokyo Olympics were meant to be the biggest ministry push the country had ever seen in its history. Okay, Because there, people have been trying this in different cities around the world and had a lot of experience. They had been coming in for really up to five years before the Olympics in order to start brainstorming, okay, what are we going to do? So there was a lot of preparation that went into this. We were promised hundreds of thousands of volunteers to go throughout the country and do lots of things. We were going to set up ministry hubs so people could see how Christians work together. And it was going to be like this great festival that we thought would then spread a revival, the Holy Spirit going across the face of that nation. Mm. And then COVID hit. Wow. And then everything fell apart. And we went into emergency mode and we're kind of still in it in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, yeah. think of a lot of Americans, they, COVID's a thing of the past for the most part, but we're still really in the midst of it. I mean, restrictions on numbers at our worship services only lifted two months ago. Uh, we still all have to wear masks. Um, there's still huge plastic barriers on tables and restaurants that really prevent good communication, wow. and the list goes on and on. Well, what were some cultural or even current things that interest Japanese, maybe the younger generation of Japanese people mm-hmm. are students that you've been able to use as a tool to communicate the gospel? Well, I've found that the arts is the arts is a great tool for sharing the gospel because rather than trying to proclaim a message in a way that seems kind of forceful, it doesn't really fit Japanese society. They don't, they don't like having you come at it like that, but to have a third party, which would be the arts... And then the Japanese person will say, well, tell me more about that. And they'll ask questions. What does that mean? And what does that mean? So they're drawn in and they're initiating their journey. And as they do that, they're learning the message of the gospel and they're building deeper relationships with us as Christians. And that's the really important part. Oh, that's beautiful, Roger. That is so beautiful. You have seen ups and downs since arriving in Japan, but you're also seeing God work in some amazing ways, Mm -hmm. aren't you? I mean, what stands out to you? What are you really praising God for right now, Roger, today, for the work he's done, Mm -hmm. you know, through your family, through the work of the mission since you've been there? Well, I'm praising God that he doesn't abandon us in our darkness, that amidst all of the the fear, all of the depression, all the anxiety that surrounded this pandemic, it really would have been easy to spiral off into chaos. (laughs) And yet God continues to be faithful. He's bringing us through. We're seeing amazing things happen. Like even my pastor's son passed away this past summer, tragic death, three small children left behind. And yet through his funeral, 
two people ended up saying, we want to become Christians, and then we're baptized this past <laughs> Christmas Sunday. So we're praising God that in the midst of such tragedy, you know, that you would see something like that. It's just amazing, the kind of God that we worship. Baby steps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people, like, of course, America, we want to now quick and preach the word and see hundreds or thousands come to Christ <laughs> in those unique and small ways you see that he is working and he's definitely building his church in Japan. Right. He is protecting us. I think so things have really crashed, I would say, during COVID. When everything got locked down, we weren't able to meet with one another. There's a fear of being around one another that lingers. And yet God is opening the country back up. We have four interns coming to work with our teams and we really sense that God is going to be opening the country back up. People want community again. They've been away from it too long. Yes. And it's a perfect time for the church to shine. I love that. Okay, so how can we pray for you? How can our listeners pray for you yeah. and your family? Well, definitely can pray for all of the aftermath of COVID that God would build his church. I cannot put in enough words express how difficult it's been during COVID, but God is bringing us through and through your prayers, uh, he will continue to build his church. We want to know how to contact you and connect with you to learn sure. more information about the work. Yeah, well, I have a website, Roger W. Lowther. Dot com. On there, you will you can see I have a podcast. I try to tell stories about how God is working uh, through testimonies of Japanese people. My latest album is up there. Uh, as an organist, I have to kind of get a credibility in the eyes of... I lead an arts organization there to help church planting. So this kind of gives me credibility to put out albums. This is called Covenant? It's called Covenant, and you can download it on Amazon or Apple Music or wherever you get your music from. Uh, Spotify. Also, not only have you written the uh, Roma Beauty, the book here about the tsunami, mm-hmm. but you have some other resources you've written, even for children. Yes. Uh, one of the stories was particularly powerful, I thought, in Roma Beauty. So I put in a children's book called Pippi the Piano, <laughs> and it's the based on a true story of a piano that was rebuilt. The people would have said, oh man, you can't rebuild a piano that's been swamped in seawater. You know, that's terrible. And so you just throw it out. But this church decided they wanted to fix it because it showed their own redemption and how God had saved them. And it continues to be a beacon in that town to all the (laughs) non-Christians in the town as they give this lunchtime concert series every week, sharing the gospel through this piano. Another resource is something about the culture of the people. You found ways that you could connect the gospel story to the culture that right. people live in Japan. Yeah, there's a, a image that the God of the Bible is a Western God and brought by Western missionaries. And so I really wanted to show people that God is the God of the Japanese people. He made the Japanese people and he is there. So The Broken Leaf is a book I wrote to help people see how we can praise God and see his gospel through Japanese art and culture, especially traditional Japanese arts. Roger, God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for what you and your wife and family are allowing Christ to do in and through you for his kingdom, for his glory in Japan. And thank you for sharing with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.